Okay, welcome to another episode of Young Professionals and Energy Podcast. I'm joined today by Jeff Merrifield. Uh, Jeff's a former NRC commissioner, um, excellent, very successful attorney, uh, based in DC. Is, is that correct, Jeff? DC That's area? Correct. Yep. Um, currently works for Pillsbury Law, but Jeff, I'll, I'll let you, uh, kind of give a brief overview of yourself, and then we'll dive into kind of your, um, earlier career and then talk, talk more macro kind of about the industry, uh, larger industry. Mark, thank you very much for having me, and it's it's a delight to be able to to, to uh, meet in this way with this particular audience. Um, as mentioned, I'm Jeff Merrifield. Uh, I'm a partner and energy section leader with Pillsbury Law Firm, uh, which has a distinction of being the world's oldest and largest nuclear law practice, dating back to the Atomic Energy Commission. I am part of a team of about a dozen lawyers, uh, and we are in our team part of a 700-member firm uh, called Pillsbury, which has got roughly 20, 21 or 22 offices around the world. Um, my team particularly focuses on advanced uh, energy technologies, namely uh, fission, fusion, and uh, increasingly hydrogen power. Excellent. Um, so, Jeff, where did you get your start? Take us back. Let's uh, let's kind of walk through your background um, to familiarize our audience with you. Well, I'm, a, I'm you know, and I won't go all the way back to birth, but I, I, um, I, originated, <laughs> I originated from New Hampshire. Uh, and after college, made my way to Washington, um, frankly, thinking I wanted to get into defense and international relations issues. I ended up getting a position as a, what they call a legislative correspondent for a senator from New Hampshire named Gordon Humphrey. And I ended up working in, uh, two, in the personal offices of two U.S. senators uh, for, for about four or five years. And interestingly enough, I actually started my career with a major focus on nuclear as New Hampshire had Seabrook Station Nuclear Power Plant, which was under construction at that point, it was uh, fairly controversial in, in that time range, and we're talking about the late 1980s. And so I spent a lot of time working working those particular issues. Um, I got my law degree at night at Georgetown, and, and uh, after I graduated, um, managed to spend a couple of years in a law firm in D.C. And in 1994, my former boss then, um, Senator Bob Smith in New Hampshire had taken over as the chairman of the Senate Superfund Subcommittee, and he asked me to come back aboard. My focus in law school had been environmental law, and so I took that role on his behalf and spent four years working on uh, the Superfund Act, which is, is which is cleaning up hazards, you know, the, the country's yeah. most significant hazardous waste uh, sites. I did a lot of work on on uh, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, which is more solid waste. Uh, and hazardous material related and, and did a lot of radioactive work, uh, with the U.S. Department of Energy. So my focus in that time frame was, was those issues. 1998, I happened to be, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona visiting a, uh, a, a Superfund site and on that trip was invited to go look at a nuclear power plant, Palo Verde Nuclear Station. And without going into long boring details out of that visit, uh, hatched the idea that I, I might be a candidate, a potential candidate to be a, Commissioner of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, that was in April of 1998. In October, I got sworn in on October 23rd and served almost nine years as a, as a, as a commissioner. Um, I'm noted, I'm probably the most traveled NRC commissioner ever because during that nine years, I managed to find myself uh, at, um, well, I, I went to about uh, half of the world's 440 nuclear power plants at that point and visited uh, 30 of the 31 countries that operate in them. So yeah. I've probably got as, as, uh, as good an understanding of the world nuclear fleet as, as anyone. When I left yeah. there, I, I, was, I was both, a, I was both a, a, an appointee of President Clinton uh, and then got reappointed and reconfirmed under President Bush. So I was both a um, Clinton and Bush appointee. Uh, left there in 2007, uh, took a job with the Shaw Group, which was a major constructor of nuclear power plants. They owned 10% of Westinghouse. Uh, and were the major provider of maintenance at uh, the existing U.S. nuclear fleet. We had about 104 of them at that point. Uh, I had I had business development. I was actually out trying to sell power plants and services and things of that nature. Uh, did that for seven years and then left uh, in 2014. Had a brief stint with my own consulting firm, but then uh, took a slot as a partner with Pillsbury, and I've been there ever since. Excellent. Um, uh, that there's there's a lot there to unpack. So, 
Um, we, we like to have our listeners kind of learn from our guests um, but and, and learn about their careers. Um, what, what was the most interesting, super fun site that you guys uh, worked on or that you worked on? Well, um, probably probably one of the more, more terrifying ones, and I'm trying to remember precisely where in Georgia it was. It was a site uh, on the coastline where they had um, used – it was a, a particular chemical uh, that was being manufactured – they had they were using mercury to create it, and so ultimately, as you went into this factory, they had a series of these of these what looked like bathtubs that had been filled with mercury, and then they would pass these chemicals across it and have a have a transformation. Well, during the years that this place operated, it operated at fairly high temperatures, so that mercury was being volatilized, and it, it made its way into the the groundwater um, surrounding this plant and underneath the concrete and with in anyone's it was and hopefully you haven't done this because it's really bad but you were <laughs> played with, with the, the mercury and the thermometer and it sort of runs around it's hard to right. grab hold of uh, but it pools and so is the is the emergency response team uh that was paid for by the epa the company gone bankrupt as they were pulling up these uh concrete panels they would find you know these pools of mercury and in, in this case you know, something the size of a, you know, it's a heavy, one of the heaviest metals on earth. So something the size right. of a five gallon bucket weighs, I don't know what it is, you know, half a ton yeah. or something. I mean, it's just some, some ridiculous thing. And they were taking, you know, I don't know how many hundred tons of mercury they ended up having to cart off that they cleaned up. It was, wow. it was a god awful mess, but. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about the, your time at the NRC. Um, kind of what you guys, uh, or how you watched that organization change or what projects you've worked on. And I mean, from 98 to, uh, 07 was an exciting time to be part of that organization. It was, and it was, it was a very, it was a very key time, both for the organization and for the nuclear industry itself. Um, when I came aboard the agency in 1998, it, it was really trying to transform itself. And this was, uh, really an effort. Uh, it had been led by then Chairman Shirley Jackson, um, a distinguished um, uh, black PhD. She currently, in fact, she's going to be retiring as a president of RPI uh, College, where she has been uh, since she left the agency. But we we were working to 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 try to make the agency, as as we would say in our parlance, more risk informed. You know, more more recognizing that the regulations of the technologies that the agency had to look at. And the way you do it needed to be better aligned. Now, for folks who, who don't really know the NRC, it, it really is an outgrowth um, from what was originally the Atomic Energy Commission. Right? The Atomic Energy Commission was created right after, you know, really, really at the very uh, latter stages of World War II to manage all of the issues related to nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, and, and uses of radioactive material. Uh, it was created as a commission, a five-member group appointed by the president. Uh, confirmed by the Senate, and it uh, was responsible at that time for running all of what we now know is the Department of Energy uh, National Labs, and the Department of Energy itself, and then uh, various roles ultimately came to fall on the on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. During the during the 60s and 70s, uh, the Atomic Energy Commission was responsible for really initiating the civilian nuclear program. Uh, the Shipping Port Nuclear Power Plant, which was the first commercial plant built in Pennsylvania, that was under the authority of the Atomic Energy Commission. And, and that body served both as the promoter of civilian nuclear power uh, as well as the regulator. Well, that worked okay for some of the early plants, but as time went on in, in, the, uh, in the early 1970s, there was a lot of tension with that because there was concern on the public, and I think this was well-regarded, that it, you know, it's not a good idea to have both your promoter and your regulator in that same house. So in 1975, under under then President Nixon, the decision was made to split the split up the Atomic Energy Commission, um, one, part of which ultimately became the Department of Energy and the National Labs. The other part was the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that maintained that structure of of the five commissioners. When I arrived at the agency in '98. Uh, we had roughly 3,000 uh, or 3,400 people, I guess, at that point. We were just a little over a billion dollars. Uh, we had signals at that point 
that maybe some of the plants were going to be shut down. It didn't look like we were going to build any new ones. And so in the early years of my being there, uh, we were really trying to reduce the size of the agency. Uh, we were trying to ready ourselves for the license renewal program so that nuclear power plants, we've got right now today 90, 93 of them, uh, the, typically they get a 40-year license. We were working on the first tranche of trying to see can you extend that an additional 20 years, which is what we did. So um, through all of that, you know, as I said, we're, we're trying to reduce the size of the agency but, but deal with the existing fleet. In the, in the early 2000s, we really believed that there was going to be a, a, a great increase in the number of plants. We had a variety of designs uh, that were licensed. The uh, AP-1000, which is designed by Westinghouse. Uh, GE had several designs. They had an advanced boiling water reactor. They had an ESBWR. Um, Ariva, uh, now Framatome, had, a, had the EPR. So we had a variety of different designs that we went, uh, went ahead and, and licensed for use. And at one point, we had indications that uh, we were going to have uh, 32 nuclear units built at 17 sites around the U.S. Uh, as a result of that, we had to staff up. We went through a very aggressive program to bring new people aboard. Um, I think the agency ultimately topped out somewhere near 4,000 individuals, uh, larger budget. Uh, that didn't come to pass. You know, you know, to use one word, gas, uh, that got in the way. And, and because of the dramatic decrease in the price of natural gas, nuclear power plants didn't look as appealing to utility executives. And so rather than, you know, having 32 plants built, um, ultimately that got narrowed down to four, uh, two of which were uh, at the Vogel site in, in Georgia. Both of those are expected right. to be completed later this year, early next year. And then two units for the for Scana Corporation, and those those have been uh, laid aside. So what was going to be a big program ultimately turned out to be much, much smaller. Yeah, yeah. Um, f- fascinating. I, I'm curious on if you think that that'll change. <laughs> Meaning, you know, we only we only built four, or well, started building four, but do we do we think that we'll build more? I do. One of the things. Um, so, in addition to my full time job, I I am also the chair of the um, Advanced Nuclear Task Force for an entity called the U.S. Nuclear Industry Association, U.S. Nuclear Industry Council, U.S. NIC, and we're the largest supplier led uh, nuclear association in, in D.C. Um, we've got a significant number of advanced reactors uh, that are in the process of being developed. Uh, there are, uh, in the last, you know, seven or eight years, been a significant amount of uh, increase in government support, widespread support in Congress now for the next generation of nuclear reactors. Uh, several designs, uh, New Scales design, which is based out of Oregon, uh, they have uh, government funding to build a unit in. Uh, um, Idaho, and that'll be owned by Utah uh, Associated Municipal Power Supply. Uh, there are two advanced reactor demonstration program reactors, one operated by TerraPower, which is a Bill Gates-related uh, company. Uh, they plan on deploying uh, their reactor, which is a, which is a fast reactor, a molten salt fast reactor in uh, Idaho. I'm mean, sorry, in, not in Idaho, in, um, in Wyoming. Uh, and then finally, X Energy, which has a high-temperature gas reactor, uh, will be was the other recipient of an advanced reactor demonstration award from DOE. Uh, they'll be deploying their design in Washington State. Uh, now, there's a variety of other designs. They're, they're in various, uh, you know, positions of trying to uh, deploy their designs as well. But I, I, I do see uh, a potential you know, really accelerating in, in the late 2020s to the early 2030s of, of the potential for down the road, uh, perhaps dozens of these reactors being deployed in the United States. Yeah, super exciting. And I think that's something that a lot of people might be ignorant about or the public might actually be uh, uneducated on. I mean, certainly Bill Gates' project gets mentioned all the time, but many of the others uh, don't, right? I'm curious, so the Nuclear Industry Council, um, you chair that also in addition to Pillsbury. So let's, I'd like to touch on that, but first let's, uh, let's talk about some of your guys' work at Pillsbury. What, uh, what kind of projects you guys worked on? What are some of the most interesting, uh, I don't know, cases or clients or whatever you can talk about? So we, we really work on, as I like to say, we do, we do soup to nuts. So, so for, for countries that want to establish nuclear programs, you know, we'll work to help develop their strategy. We'll work on, 
um, developing the regulator, the company would, would operate the plant. This is a process that, that we initially did for the United Arab Emirates. You may have heard okay. of a program they're deploying four reactors from Korea. Uh, the first yeah, several super exciting. We, we were really the one that, that helped them set up that program originally. So that that's one of the kind of things that we can do. Um, another one is uh, a lot of the, the bread and butter, you know, contracting, regulatory work, engagement with the NRC, engagement with suppliers. And, and we represent we represent countries, we represent utilities, we represent uh, the developers of technology, but we also do a lot of materials work. So we do we do work in, in mining, uh, in management of used fuel. We did some work relative to Yucca Mountain. So there's a really a wide range of areas that, that we're involved with. I think a lot of work that we're doing these days is associated with the, with the development of this next generation of, of nuclear reactors. And um, I also um, assist the Fusion Industry Association uh, in their regulatory matters. So the, the exciting thing about the work that we do is we tap into a lot of different technologies, uh, and that really gives us a, a, a real benefit and, and a lot of interest in, in uh, some really neat stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's soup to nuts is correct, right? I mean, it might have been better to ask, but what don't you guys do, right? Uh, we, don't do, we, um, don't do, we don't do weapons work. <laughs> don't, don't do weapons. Also, and specifically just nuclear, right? Or focus on the nuclear space. Or, well, you know, you Actually, said you know, mining our, our, also. Our, from, energy, energy is a big issue in our, in our firm. Um, and yeah. one of the things we're very proud of is the Pillsbury name. That was originally a California-based uh, law firm. And about 40% of, of our work comes out of California. We were actually the law firm that chartered uh, Standard Oil of California, which is now Chevron, and they've been um, our longest standing, one of our longest standing clients. So our, our base gotcha. in energy really goes well beyond that. It, it goes back to the oil and gas industry. Uh, we have a significant renewables practice uh, with folks who work on a variety of wind and, and solar projects around the country. Uh, so we can, you know, in, in the energy space, we do a lot. I would say in the team that I have, you know, our particular focus is 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 fission, nuclear, uh, right. fusion, uh, and then hydrogen, which is taking up a lot a lot of time with us recently. And and those are those are some of it's associated with with the first two, some of it's not. Okay, excellent. Um, let's uh, let's dive in on the NRC a little bit. Um, I, I took it upon myself to try and read the regs for CFR uh, ten parts fifty through fifty. Uh, two, right? And I'm, I'm hopeful that you might be able to just give kind of the audience an overview of those rules and what, what they mean and, um, what's the structure look like? Yeah, let me, let me try to make this as, as, as simple, a complex issue as simple as I can. So the, the there's current, a lot of rules. I'll put it that yeah, way. <laughs> yeah. The has got a lot of rules and, and it's got a lot yeah. of rules for the reason. These, these are technologies that need to have the right level of regulation to protect people in the environment. So, the current fleet of nuclear reactors operating in the U.S., uh, all of them were licensed under uh, 10 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 50. And that process has a whole bunch of sub-elements of things that they look at. But in, in essence, it asks a utility or an owner to come in and, and seek a two-step license. And the, and the first step of that is to, cons- to, to seek a construction license. And in that process, the agency would assess the design, where it's located, all the circumstances around it, and make a determination as to where they felt that that design was safe for that site. That process would be subject to a, a public hearing. So you could have people ask to intervene and, and challenge that. Once that license had been granted to construct it, then the utility would go and, and they would go ahead and pay for getting the plant built. The plant would be completed. And then they would come in and seek an operating license. Agency would come in, assess how that plant was built, did it meet all the specifications. They would have another opportunity for a public hearing, and then assuming that that was okay, they'd be granted a license and they could begin uh, initial low-power operations. Now, that process worked well for a while, but in the later stages of the 1980s to the early 1990s, uh, it, it got bogged down. Some of it was, you know, additional requirements added by Three Mile Island. Um, some of it was, frankly, uh, uh, the growth of the anti-nuclear movement in the U.S. And, and an effort to use that that process and intervention process to try to slow down or kill some of these plants. And so toward the end, 
that that process really got dragged out. And the concern was you put all this money into constructing the plant without, you know, without having a guarantee at the end, you're going to be able to actually operate it. And so as a result of that, in the, in the 90s, Congress uh, said to the NRC, you've got to come up with a different process. And so that uh, what then developed, and I was there when we approved it, was, was Part 52. And Part 52 is, a, is what's called a one-step license, and that employs a couple of different things. First, you, you go ahead and you get an early site permit. So you, you get the, the site itself permitted uh, that you can deploy a nuclear reactor, and, th- and those licenses can be 20 years in, in duration. The second thing you can do is you can go ahead and you can get the design itself approved, a design certification, so that you go through all those issues up front. If you apply for a, a you know, reactor license under Part 52, and the two nuclear units currently being built in Georgia, Vogel Units 3 and 4, owned by Southern Company, <coughs> did go through that process, you apply for that, the agency reviews that design, that site, make sure that they're compatible and, and, and meet the agency requirements, and you have one opportunity for public intervention. Once that license is granted and you've gotten through any of the challenges, then the only thing you have is then you go ahead and you build your plant because you know you're going, to, you're going to be able to operate it. The only other intervening action is something called ITACs, which is a series of tests and requirements. Uh, that, that basically, it's a series of evaluations that are conducted by the agency to make sure that the plant as built conforms to the license that was granted in that in that uh, in that permit. And that's and that's the process that, that Southern Company is in the midst of right now with the agency uh, to 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 get to that to get to that endpoint where they can operate the reactors. That actually has gone. Frankly, I think a lot better than folks originally anticipated, and I would expect either late this year or early next year uh, those two two volume units will be under under, uh, under operation. Now, with the development of advanced nuclear reactors, there was really a call for something different, and the reason is that both parts fifty and fifty two were really developed with light water reactors in mind, and light water reactors are what we currently have in the United States. Right. These advanced reactors, which use high-temperature gas, molten salt, uh, fast reactors, things of this nature, are, are different. And so Congress, several years ago, said, okay, NRC, you need to come up with a targeted framework for the licensing of these advanced reactor technologies and do so in a way that will enable their deployment. The agency has been under an effort over the last several years, and I've been very involved, as, as have others, in engaging with the agency, has been, has been involved in trying to develop that Part 53. Now, in the, in the NEMA Act, uh, it was required that that, pro- that, that that rule be in place by 2027. Subsequently... What's, what's the NEMA Act? Oh, sorry. Um, I was afraid you were going to ask me that actually. <laughs> I, I, I'm terrible I'll, with that. You, you keep but, talking, I'll look it up. I've got a computer in front of me. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, NEMA was the was the uh, was the bill, and that went through several years ago, and it had a series of of actions undertaken to to promote the deployment of these advanced reactors. The Part 53 requirement being one of them. Well, subsequently, uh, Congress and um, uh, the NRC sort of came to the conclusion, well, we, we really ought to do this faster because these reactors are being deployed in a quicker way than we originally anticipated. And so the agency had targeted to have that rule complete by 2024. Um, I think that was aggressive, appropriately aggressive, but because of, I think, some of the pushback in some of the early drafts the agency has put out uh, in, a, in a pre-proposed rule, um, they've, they've delayed that by about nine months. So I think we're anticipating, or at least they're shooting, to have a final rule in place uh, by 2025. That's where we are. Okay. And so I think this is fantastic, and I think this is not known by a lot of people, or and I think a lot of people don't understand how some of these rules work and function. Um, real, real quick, though, so Part 50 was the original rule. Um, you guys developed Part 52 to manage some changes or improve on it. Part 51 is the environmental piece uh, or addresses the the environmental plan, um, but then identified that potentially needed a different set of rules for for small modular reactors and different designs, right? That's right. And, and just to, and just to reinforce, it was the nuclear, nuclear energy innovation and modernization act, NEMA. 
in which that in which that congressional requirement was was put into place. There you go. Okay. Um, so how how is the Part Fifty Three going to be different from Parts Fifty and Fifty Two? Uh, well, it'll be it'll be different in in, in several respects. Um, I, I think a, a key piece of it it will have a much greater focus on through the use of, of probabilistic risk assessments. And these are these are tools which are, are used to take a look at what are the characteristics of the of the plant you want to build and what are some of the risks that are attendant to that and try to, to develop an appropriate analysis uh, to have uh, predictive tools to understand where that's going to go. Those PREs can be used as an element of helping to define and refine what is the right regulatory framework you want to have for that particular reactor design. And so that that will be that will be one piece of it. A, a lot of the effort over the last several years has been put into you know the use of PRA and what that really means uh, in, in in that context. Um, Part fifty three will try to will try to strip away some of the specific requirements that were related to light water reactors. So you know some of the things uh, you know the amount of time, the coping time, the amount of time you have to respond to various things, uh, the need for uh, the same type of backup power supplies you may not need to have the same same type given the nature of of the way that these other reactors operate uh, they have a reduced source term less amount of potential radiation uh, that could escape the reactor so you could have a, a smaller emergency evacuation zone more risk informed requirements uh, for security it doesn't have to be a one size fits all as is, is the case with the current fleet so a variety of different things that the agency is looking at right now uh, and, and there's a lot of back and forth dialogue about what should or shouldn't be uh, included. So I, I, I would I would say that's very much a work in progress. Gotcha. Um, you identified that you know, selecting the location for a plant is kind of one of the first steps for modern um, reactors, which makes sense, right? If you've got a large gigawatt scale plant, you got to figure out where to put it. Um, but some of the smaller designs, small modular reactors are still. Uh, I mean, we call them small modular reactors. Uh, that's kind of a misnomer for many of them because they're still large factories, right, that generate power. Um, but there's some of the micro reactors that, and technologies that are being developed for the DOD. And I mean, the things that the Navy's done for, since inception of nuclear energy for you know, um, power have been mobile uh, power plants, right? Um, what are your thoughts on that? part of the sector, specifically microreactors um, and the deployment of those throughout the U.S. Would, is that even possible with the current rural framework? Okay, well, uh, to, to use something you said earlier, that, that's a lot to unpack. Let me, let me see if I can. First, sort of let's set the deck a little bit more in terms of what we're talking about. You know, sure. Small launch reactors you know, many times also equate to light small launch reactors. And um, Really, these fall into in sort of two buckets. The first bucket is the the, the type of, of coolant and moderator that's used. So as I said, all the current reactors use light water. You know, some reactors that use molten salt. Some reactors use high-temperature gas and uh, uh, triso-fuel, which is a, a multi-coated fuel particle that can be in a fuel assembly the size of a, of a, of a, of a pool ball. Uh, or you may have uh, fast reactors. Those are some of the different technology designs. They can also be sized in a variety of ways. You mentioned microreactors. Typically, that's under 10 or 20 megawatts. Uh, you have uh, uh, sort of mid-size, which go from 20, 10 to 20 megawatts up to about 300, and then thing, reactors over 300 megawatts that are that are larger. Um, as we roll out this next generation, there will be a couple of waves. The first wave will be uh, light water small modular reactors. So this will be uh, new scales design. Uh, which is a which is a pool based design with with modules of reactors in it. The pool could take as many as 12 77 megawatt uh, modules. Uh, you have GE, which has its uh, BWRX 300, which is a derivation of their historic design. Uh, that's one that's been selected for deployment uh, with Ontario Power Generation up in Canada, uh, as well as Tennessee Valley Authority down in, in Tennessee. Um, the third in this in this grouping would, would be uh, Holtec, which is a New, New Jersey-based uh, company that has 160 megawatt design, uh, most of which is is underground. Um, the second 
tranche, I think, are, are those which have received uh, the government funding, uh, X Energy and, and uh, the, the Terra Power and Atrium design. Um, and I would correct myself earlier. Um, Terra Power actually has a couple of different designs uh, that they have under development, and I, and I conflated them. The design that they'll be deploying in Wyoming uh, is, a, is a fast reactor design that is paired with a molten storage a solar salt storage facility. Uh, normally that operates at 345 megawatts, but with the solar salt, they can operate at, at about 500 megawatts for about five and a half hours a day. Right. Then, then you've got other reactor designs, which are in various stages of development. Um, Kairos Power out of, um, out of Oakland, uh, Terrestrial Energy, which is molten salt uh, reactor design in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Moltex, uh, which is, which is working on a design up, up in Canada, uh, ARC. There's, there's a, there's a number of companies out there which are in various stages. Now, to your point on, on the, uh, the mobile reactors or micro reactors, uh, let's, let's start with the, with the mobile reactors right now. This is a program called Project Pele, which is under the, um, um, Strategic Capabilities Office of the Department of Defense. These reactors are intended to be mobile, uh, be able to fit on an uh, Air Force C-17, fly halfway around the world, and be right. up and operating within 72 hours of landing of the of the aircraft. Um, there are two companies, X-Energy and uh, BWXT, which have been selected as the finalists uh, for that program. Uh, we'll hear an announcement probably sometime in, in, in the coming weeks or months that would indicate which of those two designs they're, they're going to move forward with. Uh, both of them use uh, triso-coated uh, fuel, uh, and because of its, it's got a high degree of, of uh, resiliency in, in, in combat environment, that's that's uh, a very desirable capability. Um, why are we why are they going down that road? Well, there, there's really two reasons. The, the stated reason is that in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, fully half of the of the Troops that we lost um, were people who were who were helping to transport or accompany liquid fuels, either either uh, jet fuel, diesel, or or frankly water. If we can reduce that supply chain, you know there are commensurate uh, benefits from from a war fighting standpoint of of being at risk, and so that's. That's, that's, that's one of the reasons that they want to do it. The other reason is that our military environment is changing. You know, anyone who's been watching about what's going on in Ukraine realizes, you know, we're fighting a different war than we fought 10 years ago. And with the advent of, uh, you know, electrified vehicles, be they flying vehicles or they, or they be vehicles on the ground, uh, having, having the energy capability in a forward deployed manner is going to be very important. Secondly, we've seen the deployment of hypersonic missiles by the Russians. Uh, this is a very fearsome uh, weapon because they are incredibly difficult to shoot down. The only way you can really shoot down a hypersonic weapon is with a laser-based weapon. And the only way you can power a laser-based weapon is to have high energy and not need a whole lot of fuel. And nuclear is really the only one that fits that bill. So um, we have, as a country, deployed uh, laser systems on several Navy Ships at about 120 kilowatt level. Uh, really, what, what I think the military down the line is looking for are systems that could shoot a laser at about one megawatt per shot on a, on a repeated basis. And, and nuclear yeah. only way you, you're, you're going to get there. So that's so that, that from a, from a strategic standpoint, that's one of the reasons that program is going there. Now, on a civilian side, you know, I, th- I would say sort of two things. Number one, there are a number of very remote areas, mining sites. Uh, you know, remote communities which could, uh, you know, benefit from having access to, you know, clean, safe energy that's, that's highly dense and you don't have to rely on, you know, a long train of, of petroleum to, to, to keep the lights on. And, and so there's a lot of folks who are looking at that. One of the reactor designs um, uh, that's gotten some attention is, is Oklo. Uh, this is a one and a half megawatt uh, fast reactor design that is uh, in the midst of, of they're trying to, they're in the midst of trying to get that license by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they've got uh, um, work. I think initially they're going to deploy one of those in Idaho National Lab, but they, among others, are, are having discussions in Alaska, Canada, and elsewhere uh, in, in very remote areas where that would be desirable. Um, finally, I would have to say uh, Westinghouse uh, also is working on 
a, uh, a micro-reactor. Uh, theirs is, is what's called a heat pipe, and, uh, you know, they, they are also in a process of, of looking for where they could deploy those as well. So a lot of different technologies out there, quite an exciting time to be part of the industry. Super exciting. Are you familiar with the Hall of Gen? I am. I am. That's a, that's a that's a very interesting design. Um, it's a it's a sort of a nuclear jet engine. Uh, it's great. So it's my favorite. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I I I know those folks and have been out to their. Uh, they've got a site uh, where they're actually assembling uh, some of those units and doing some testing out in uh, in Virginia. And I've, I've actually been out to take a look at that. It's it's pretty neat. Awesome. Um, so something that gets touted often about the industry is the difficulty to innovate. And I'm actually reading a book now by Matt Ridley um, that is all about innovation. And he highlights as an example, uh, one of the only industries and technologies that it has been difficult or impossible, impossible to innovate on is nuclear. Um, and he cites the regulatory environment as being a predominant hurdle because, you know, if, in order to innovate, people need lots of reps and they need to, try and fail and try and fail. And it's impossible to do that with when you only get one shot at building a large power plant or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of regulatory hurdles and red tape to, to go around. So curious on your thoughts on that. Do you think this next part 53 is going to help enable that? And if not, then how do we, I guess, change the dialogue in the U S specifically to, to enable more innovation in the space? Well, okay. So, so let me sort of walk through that one. I mean, it is clearly, the intention of Congress that we enable these designs. I mean, that's what they were yeah. trying to accomplish through NEMA. Um, and indeed, even to the, the very, uh, if you go back to the original Atomic Energy Act, while there is a focus on making sure we've got a regulatory process that's going to protect people in the environment, the Atomic Energy Act was undertaken with the notion that we would use nuclear technologies for beneficial purposes for the American people. And so it, it captures within it the notion of enablement as well. Um, nu- nuclear energy is a, is a complicated thing. Uh, it's, it's certainly not easy. And we do have a track record of having had some missteps uh, in, in, in its use in the past. And there's plenty of people like to talk about the history, but it, it is what it is. Um, yeah. But I, I think I think there's a, a careful balance that can be laid. And that is, you know, having a regulatory structure that, that meets that requirement. To, to provide adequate protection for public health and environment, but not done so in such a way to unnecessarily um, uh, hinder or, or squelch the ability to, to enable and develop these technologies. One of the things I think um, sometimes we get in trouble with in the industry is we try to go too big too fast. And, and I think one of the benefits of some of the technologies that, that we've had a chance to talk about today is that they are smaller. Uh, it, it's it's uh, You can build... 150 or 300 megawatt reactor uh, a lot faster. You can have a lot more of that in a factory like setting when compared to the 1200, 1600 plus megawatt uh, reactors that we had a history of building for a long period of time. So I think one of the things that the, that the participants in this industry are really looking at is how, how do we do this in a way that's going to make it easier to deploy in mass scale? The, the other thing I, I think People sometimes forget, you know, when we had the first group of reactors, the 104, they were they were pretty much all, and there were exceptions to this, but most of them were one-offs, one or two-offs, right? And so you had to keep going in and, and getting a new approval for, for the reactor design. Um, in the case of the, the, the modern technologies, folks realize we need, to, we need to get this solidified, you know, ultimately get a design certification. So whether I build it in Ohio, I build it in Illinois, I build it in Georgia, I'm building the same thing, and that makes that regulatory process uh, so much more straightforward. I, I haven't heard of anyone these days, um, you know, at least currently saying they're going to build a Westinghouse AP1000 going forward. That may occur down the road, but that sun has been approved. <laughs> and, right. and to the extent that Westinghouse is taking that, and there are a number of countries outside of the U.S. that are, that are taking a look at that design, that's an NRC-approved design. It has been built in China. It will be complete with a couple of reactors um, by, by this time next year. And so that's that's when we've got a track record. And it makes it a lot easier to get it replicated again. But with that with that design specifically, I mean, I spoke to the Colorado Energy Office last week that looks at the Public Utility Commission or over you know, has oversight with them. And they said that, you know, part of their 
motive or, or responsibilities to, to um, help with oversight and policy in Colorado. Um, and they said that there's just no one bringing these projects to the utilities, right? That no one's presenting nuclear projects to be built. Yeah. Well, here's, here's, okay. There's, I got two reactions to that. Comment. Yeah. First one is really no, nobody's bringing any projects save offshore wind of, of that magnitude anywhere. I mean, we're just, sure. we are as a country, we're moving toward more decentralized power generation. And that's why these smaller reactors, be they micro reactors <coughs> or, or reactors that are in the 150 to 300 megawatt range, that's why we're going to see a lot more of those. We don't have that same need for, 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 for centralized power. We want it more decentralized. We want it to be able to, to work with uh, intermittent sources. Uh, and, and a lot of these designs are, are very well uh, uh, enabled in, in that regard. And, um, you know, so, so that's, I think, the direction we're going. I, so for that reason, I don't, I don't think we're going to see utilities coming in saying, I've got a 1,000 megawatt plus nuclear power plant built. Now, having said that, there are lots of discussions underway with utilities about small modular and, and advanced reactors. And Ontario Power Generation and TVA are just at the tip of the spear on this uh, issue. I think there's a lot of utilities that are looking at this very closely. And I think if we had more of these designs that had already gone through the licensing process, I think we'd see a lot more, uh, a lot more projects moving forward. Now, as it relates to Colorado, um, not certain where that comment came from. I was actually in a public meeting back probably six months ago where Pueblo was trying to figure out, you know, right. what are we going to do after the shutdown of, of the Comanche unit and can we deploy nuclear assets at that location, uh, a new scale reactor or some other design? And, and that was pretty active discussion. So, and I know that's been, you know, talked about. Uh, certainly I, c- I could see Colorado down, down the road, uh, at least thinking about deploying some nuclear generation. Uh, in that regard, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm hopeful that they will. Um, you know, when I was digesting the rules, right, I've got no oil and gas background, so we, we deal with the BLM and um, have also a stringent set of rules and responsibilities when we um, go and, and drill oil and gas wells. But my take was that the, the nuclear rules were significantly more stringent. And I would say they're even more stringent than certainly the the wind and solar industry also i mean it, it feels like there's not an equal playing field in the um number of rules that have to be adhered to by each of the different technologies um what's what's your take on that um well i think that's i think that's fair i mean um and this goes back to my comment before i mean it's a, it's a, it's a you know nuclear power is a, is a technologically sophisticated way of making energy and um Despite, split, splitting atoms part. It's pretty cool. Right. We're, we're splitting atoms. It's, it's pretty cool, but it's it, but it comes with a, a variety of complications, and you got to have the right structure to make sure it's done safely. Now, people, you know, always sort of trot out, you know, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and all that stuff. You know, Three Mile Island, um, you know, we would make the argument that that showed that things worked. I mean, there, there were no one was injured or, or, or killed as a result of Three Mile Island. The systems ultimately were able to, to contain it. Yeah. Uh, in the way it needed to be done, right? So, so you know, I, I would say in some regard things work. Now, it, it could have been worse, and there were a lot of mistakes made during that that accident, all which we've learned from and improved from. But you know, ultimately the systems uh, were made to operate appropriately. The um, so for that reason, yeah, we do have a more complicated structure. Uh, it does require folks like us <laughs> and, and people who have a lot of technical understanding of those regulations to assist the utilities in, 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 in making that effort work. But we seem to we seem to be, be able to do it. And I do think we're going to have, uh, as I mentioned, I do think we're going to have a lot more reactors get built on them. My reaction or my gut reaction to, yeah, nobody got hurt at Three Mile Island, but we have a lot more rules because of it is, uh, I don't know, my knee-jerk reaction is, now, in oil and gas, we're producing tons of natural gas that we're, um, you know, we have to frack every single well, and we get propent or sand to every location by trucking it there. Um, and so to get that power, there's thousands of trucks on the road all the time, and they get into accidents and hurt and kill people, right? So we're actively hurting people and killing people. And, I mean, 
And I've seen, you know, facilities burn down. I've seen accidents in oil and gas. Like it's, it's a very dangerous business. And we're actively, um, doing that instead of this other safer technology that isn't hurting anyone. You know, I, I, I just find it strange, right? Well, I, I, you know, it's one of those, you know, who, who sort of dove into this a while back and, and, and yeah. you know, I'm one of the true believers, right? I really think this is an important way of generating clean energy. Um, right. yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, that sense. And I think one of the challenges is as a country, um, I, I frankly don't think we, we fundamentally do as well in teaching people science and about risk as we should. And you, you make a very good point. I mean, it's, it's like the issue of what would happen at, at, at Fukushima. You know, no, nobody died. Nobody got killed as a result of the accident. But we did have people who got killed as a result of the evacuation because they ordered an evacuation that was frankly a lot bigger and a lot wider than, than they should have. So you gotta, you, you have to, you have to factor all those things into ultimately how you, you know, how you deal with this. I'd use another, and let's go the other way. Um, the province of Ontario, largest province uh, population-wise in Canada, today now derives all of their energy from either hydroelectric or nuclear power. So they are 100% from a carbon standpoint, they're they're pretty close to 100%. Uh, uh, yeah, completely. for their electricity generation, absolutely. And they used to, now they used to have coal units and they had other units there. They did a, a, a medical study uh, of the health effects in Ontario as a result of having done that. And they now realize they had a dramatic drop in childhood asthma as a result of having shut down those coal plants and having the clean energy provided by hydro and nuclear. So uh, people people fail to factor that one in. I mean, if you're operating a 1,000 megawatt coal plant, you're talking about bringing in, you know, a, I don't know something like 40, 40 cars of coal a day, you know, and and – that's a lot of this is just going up in the atmosphere. And, yeah. and so it does have commensurate health effects, both, both from a clean air standpoint, from a, from a visual standpoint, but the health effects of what people breathe in, asthma, other, other health effects, uh, lung cancer that comes from that. So people put, people get all freaked out about nuclear and, and, and I sort of get it. You can't see it. You can't touch it. It's, it's harder to, you know, to assuage, but there are stuff, the, the, the alternatives are, are in many ways far worse. And loading coal cars is a boring job. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and, and, you um, know, natural gas, nat, you know, natural gas is better than coal, but natural gas is still putting a lot of carbon up in the atmosphere. And yeah. and those frack wells you talk about, unfortunately, you know, there's a, a fair number of them that leak methane, and that's even more dramatically uh, dangerous for uh, for the climate from a carbon perspective, or from a, from a climate sure. perspective. Sure. Um, so the, when we spoke previously, um, we lamented about how strange it was that the NRC, uh, had vacancies. And, um, since we've spoken, uh, there's been some recent appointments, uh, not, not sworn in as far as I know, or unless I'm, unless I'm wrong, I don't know, I might be behind the times, but I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on the, the perspective of new commissioners. Yeah. So, well, just, again, this is for your, for folks who don't necessarily follow the sure. NRC that well. So, so the NRC has five commissioners. Um, one of those five commissioners is de- designated by the president as being chairman. Uh, under, under law, you can't have more than three members of either party. Uh, so right now we're going to end up having, you know, once folks are confirmed, we'll have three Democrats and two Republicans. I served in, you know, two Democrats, three Republicans, three Republicans. You know, so I've served in, in, in both versions of that. Um, there were two openings. One uh, was a Republican slot. One was a, a Democratic slot. Uh, Annie Caputo, uh, who had previously served on the commission and whose prior term ended uh, uh, about a year ago, uh, she is one of the two individuals who the president has nominated, uh, or, or I guess will be nominating. I don't know if the nominations have gone up quite yet. They had an intent to nominate. The other is um, uh, Bradley Crown. Bradley is a former Hill staffer who currently uh, is responsible for the Nevada, I can't remember the, the particular department, but he's focused on uh, energy and, and sort of interior-related matters, I, I believe. Um, they uh, Once those nominations go up, uh, the process is the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee will have a hearing on that. Uh, they'll presumptively report those two nominations out. 
and then it will be put on the Senate calendar for full Senate consideration. Where we are at this point in May, you know, in, in NRC parlance, everybody worries about June 30th because every June 30th, one of the members of the commission has their term, their five-year term expire. And so I would, I would anticipate, uh, and, and by the way, it's also conveniently located right before the July 4th recess. So a lot of times what will happen is you'll have this whole spate of nominations that will get kicked out by, by, by the Senate, uh, right before that, that recess. So I think I would expect the administration is going to try to get those nominations up pretty quickly uh, to the Senate Environment Public Works Committee. And I, and I suspect they'll try to turn it around, uh, at least to put it in, in place, such that they could potentially have those nominations completed before uh, before we, we get to the 4th of July. Gotcha. Jeff, we're running up on our times, and I want to get to some of the questions we ask all of our guests. Um, so but let, let's just kind of jump into those. Um, what's what's one thing about the uh, energy industry that keeps you up at night or scares me? You know, um, I, 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 you know, I sleep pretty well, so I don't I don't really have a lot of. This. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, we we're going to have an extraordinary opportunity for uh, the next generation of nuclear plants, and I and I do hope uh, that we've got enough people. To, to help deploy them. And I, I do get a little concerned that we've got a lot of folks like me who have gray hair who are retiring and, and we, need, we really need, need to generate that new workforce to take over this, these new units. Uh, a lot of promise to it, uh, but we've got work to do. Yeah. Um, I, I think that segues in good into our next question, which is what advice do you have for young people, young people in the energy industry? I think it's, you know, if you're interested in energy, there, there's no, there's no better time to to uh, to uh, enter it than, than right now. I think there's obviously a lot of different variations. Everyone's been looking at wind and solar over the, over the past several years. I've got lots of friends in, in both of those industries, and there are additional opportunities there. I think there are some some other technologies coming down the road that, to me, are quite interesting. Um, advanced nuclear, uh, carbon capture, which I think is going to take increasing importance. Uh, hydrogen production, and, and we did a paper in our firm uh, talking about how hydrogen generation can be used to make ammonia. Ammonia can be used to power long-range maritime transportation uh, through dual-use dual maritime engines. Uh, we talked about fusion, which is uh, there's a, a number of technologies coming down the road that are being developed privately uh, that have a lot of promise. So there's an incredible amount of change it's going to be uh, uh, undertaken and underway. Uh, I think there's a lot of different technologies that folks could get themselves into, and, and uh, I think it's worth kicking the tires, taking a look, and uh, if you're interested in energy, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there before you go forward. That's fantastic. Um, I, I, I think we'll leave it there. So, Jeff, I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, we appreciate having you. Oh, my pleasure, and uh, happy to do it again. <laughs>